Comics. Movies. Music. Video games. Technology. Blu-ray. Television. This is the HHW LOD Podcast Network. The HHW LOD Podcast Network proudly presents Real Heroes, the podcast that takes a critical look at comic book movies. The good. I am Iron Man. The bad. I punish the guilty. And the worthless. I am the law. Hey everyone, this is the Real Heroes Podcast. This is Russ, and joining with me tonight are Rich and Jordan. Hey guys. Hello. Twit, twit. So we're a little out of order this week. Uh, so Amazing Spider-Man 2 actually came out before X-Men Days of Future Past, but we wanted to kind of strike while the iron was hot. We did that one first, so we've kind of come back to circle up the wagons and uh, regroup on the Amazing Spider-Man 2, which is, is probably okay. Uh, it's given us a, a chance to kind of get a, a better handle on some of the box office numbers and grosses. So he's taken Russ's younger consciousness and sent it further into the future, into his older body, to talk about the movie. Yes. Yes, it did. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, okay, so I guess we'll just we'll just dive right into it. Uh, this will probably be a somewhat short episode, I think. I, I don't think we're going to have a lot of impassioned discussion one way or the other. So it was released, of course, on May 2nd, 2014. So far, it has a domestic gross of $194 million, so not a bad haul for just, just over a month. Uh, the foreign gross, though, that's where the numbers get really big. Uh, it shows a foreign gross, according to Box Office Mojo at this point, of $503 million, which is pushing the, the total up to uh, $697 million, which is uh, pretty impressive. It's, it's, it'll pretty much... I think at this point it's guaranteed to hit the uh, the 700 million mark. Amazing Spider-Man one worldwide gross is 752, so I'm not sure if it's going to have enough legs to hit that. Maybe uh, I think it's I think it's going to come really close to that. I don't I don't know if there are any major territories left that the movie hasn't opened in at this point. Well, and I'm wondering too is did ASM two have more screens on opening? Than one as far as availability to to viewers or maybe um, you know what, what's into those numbers you know yeah yeah hard to say I mean they were both 3D uh, so you know I don't think the 3D really pushed one way or the other uh, you know the the other one just it came out I guess what is it it was two years ago 2012 was the first one I believe so. yeah so so not not a whole lot of time for things like box office inflation, 3D, you know, increase in 3D sales, all that kind of stuff. So I think these numbers are pretty comparable. So it basically did about what the first one did, which, again, 752 million, 700 million between the two of them worldwide is pretty impressive numbers. Um, I wasn't able to, to gather a, a budget on this one. It, the, the first Amazing Spider-Man showed a budget of 230 million. I got to imagine this one's got to be pretty close to that. Uh, which seems like a really astronomical sum of money, considering, uh, you know, what some of the other movies we've seen. You know, even De- X Men: Days of Future Past, I think, was two hundred million. Um, the Marvel stuff has been coming in right about one hundred and seventy-five. Uh, so they're really, you know, pushing the budget. I think a lot of it is just th- there's a ton of CG uh, in this. I know they did a little bit of New York location shooting for Amazing Spider-Man Two, which 
again, that may have bloated the cost a little bit. Opening weekend, pretty strong, uh, $91 million. So that, that I think, has it in, at this point, third place. I think so far Cap is first, uh, Godzilla is second, and this is third with X-Men being uh, just under uh, 91 with in fourth place. Um, but in Amazing Spider-Man, the first one had a $62 million opening weekend. So I, I definitely think this one benefited from, you know, the whole sequel buzz uh, you know, letting the first movie kind of get the word out and then, you know, people being somewhat excited uh, for this one. I think the trailers had a lot to do with it. You know, I know a lot of us were really excited in looking at the trailers and thinking how good uh, this one was going to be, at least at least just looking, like I said, at the trailers. Uh, getting into some scoring, Rotten Tomatoes is scored it at 53, so it's not a fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, but the audience rating, like we typically see, is a little bit higher, 72% uh, for the audience rating uh, for this movie. I was kind of surprised at how hard the, quote, professional critics hit on on this outing of of Spider-Man. I, I, I mean, a lot of their gripes, their complaints to me were not... <sighs> It's like they were trying to review some sort of Oscar-nominated film. This is a summer blockbuster popcorn movie, you know, superhero movie. And they really tore it apart way more than I expected them to. And I, you know, overall enjoyed it. I mean, yeah, there were a lot of little issues here and there. But, I mean, they raked it through the the coals uh, reading some of the reviews. So... Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it just boils down to dialogue, pacing, and some of that stuff that we'll talk about. You know, critics tend to rate that stuff harsh and don't... I I notice that depending on the source, I mean, granted, some of the sources they use are pretty official. Some of the critics that are sourced with Rotten Rotten Tomatoes are outlets that are more favorable to like summer blockbusters and those kind of movies. But most of them are, you know, just regular, you know, movie reviews for major newspapers and outlets and critics and things like that. And they typically tend to view things, you know, as, as if it, you know, everything should be an Oscar contender. I guess they, they don't take into account uh, context um, because, you know, I, I think we, we all, you know, in in our community as movie lovers and geeks and stuff like that, we definitely can acknowledge the difference between an Amazing Spider-Man or an X-Men Days of Future Past and, you know, The Godfather or, you know, Citizen Kane or, or some of those other movies. I mean, everything, you know, tends to be a bit relative, but I don't I don't get the sense from the, the quote unquote professional critics that that's the case. Well, and honestly, I mean, superhero movies have been getting better i mean not citizen kane level maybe or godfather level but as we look at movies like cap 2 or like the winter soldier those lines of yeah but it's a superhero movie kind of get blurrier and blurrier and blurrier and agreed as far as i'm concerned that's actually a good thing you know no absolutely absolutely well and that's that's why you know to me and i get the way the academy awards work and the and the whole political behind the scenes stuff that goes on in hollywood but these have become a major part of the movie-going revenue that's out there in the economy to the point that I think, why don't they add some sort of a category in the Academy Awards for genre film or something 
along those lines because there's a lot of amazing work that goes into these films that gets ignored. Yeah, occasionally you'll see a, a, a special effects award and things like that, but I mean, uh, some of the, uh, the way these movies are directed, I mean, look at Cat 2. I mean, that was beautifully directed and that's going to get no recognition from from Hollywood at all uh, during award season. So I just, I think that maybe, you know, with as much as these movies are becoming a part of the movie going culture, not just the subculture of us nerds, um, they deserve more recognition than they've gotten in the past. Maybe not Amazing Spider-Man 2 necessarily, but you know. Yeah. I mean, a movie doesn't make a billion and a half dollars if it doesn't have a lot of merit, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and I'm not saying box office, you know, receipts should be the ultimate gauge of what is good and what is not good, but obviously there's something there. Um, exactly. But I, 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 I don't hold a lot of hope uh, for that. Oh, no. Uh, That's why we have the MTV awards and whatnot. They, they take yeah. care of that for us. It's just not yeah. as prestigious. <laughs> By far. Uh, so back behind the director's chair, Mark Webb, uh, who I think actually did a pretty good job with Amazing Spider-Man 1. I was a little critical based on that early trailer uh, for some of the POV stuff, and I, I think uh, he was able to move past that quite a bit, and I, th I think he actually directed a pretty decent movie. Uh, I, I, don't, I, I can't say that direction is the issue with this movie specifically. I, I can't point to anything that says it was poorly directed. I, I think the problems uh, are are much deeper than uh, that, that I have with them uh, are much deeper than the directing side of it. No, I thought, I thought his direction was fine. Not to mention he's got the most appropriate name for directing these films. Yeah. And no kidding. I, uh, I don't know. I, I thought that a lot of the, the way scenes were set up, shots were set up, different things like that were much better this film than the first one, as far as some of the action sequences and whatnot. I mean, some of that goes into editing and the CG and special effects and whatnot, but still, uh, definitely the scenes as far as between him and Gwen and whatnot, I thought were directed very well. Um, if, if I were to really put any negative anything on on the direction for characters it would be the way he directed for harry osborne i just i i'm not sure I, I don't know that that suffered i don't think it was a good casting choice i don't think it was a good good written dialogue and i just i don't i don't know i just it, it felt like a sore thumb just stuck out as bad yeah uh so writing credits uh go to Alex Kurtzman and Roberto Orsi and Jeff Pinker, which I think Orsi and Kurtzman had both had uh, writing credits on the first one as well. So uh, kind of like, you know, the gang back together for this one. And I think if I had any criticism of this movie more so than anything is it's the writing. Uh, I felt it was very uneven and I don't know if that's just based on how this script was cobbled together or how, you know, maybe some of the writing duties were separated if they were at all. Uh, but I think, you know, like I said, if anything that was weak, it was, it was the script in my, in my book. I, I agree to a point, uh, cause there was a lot of really bad dialogue in here. And it makes me think because I see Kurtzman and Orchie on a lot of projects in, in, in the past couple of years. And I wonder, are they getting spread too thin? 
Well, now that they're this or is, or they just not very good with dialogue. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think this is the last project that they're doing together. I think from this point forward, they've actually split their partnership. So. Oh, really? Yeah. They, well, that's because is it Kurtzy or Ortsman who's taking uh, Star Trek Three and directing it? Orsi, I think Orsi's going to direct uh, Star Trek Three. But I think, yeah, from what I understand, their split was not like a yeah, we're done working together so much as a we won't have time to work right, with, right again with each other in the near future. Yeah, I, yeah, it wasn't a drama of you know we're about ready to punch each other in the face. It was yeah, just different different creative directions, you know, different stuff occupying our time. Yeah, because they've been writing together on the IDW series, the ongoing for Star Trek that takes place in the J.J. Abrams universe. And just recently, uh, Kurtzman took more of a producer-editor role in that, and or she's still doing a lot of the writing. So I can see where that's happening, yeah. The score. Now, this is an area where I had a lot of problems with it. Um it felt very tonally different than the first one, uh, where I thought a lot of, in the first one, I felt this, there was a lot of the score that was very uplifting, uh, that had some really cool high moments. Um, it didn't really, you know, it, it tried, it, it was a departure from the Danny Elfman stuff, which I think was a good idea, uh, but not a radical departure. Um, so the score in this one's credited to Johnny Marr, uh, Farrell Williams, and Hans Zimmer, which I thought was really odd because usually, and maybe, maybe I'm, Maybe you guys heard something different, but usually with a Zimmer score, I could tell it's a Zimmer score. I mean, he has a very distinctive style, in my opinion, when you listen to his stuff. And I didn't get the, I didn't see the Zimmer come through in this at all. And I think there was just some really odd musical choices in this movie that really kind of, for me to notice it like I did, it really just kind of took me out of it. Well, I wonder, and I haven't really looked that close into it, but I'm wondering if, rather than being so much collaborative, if the three of them just didn't take different pieces of the film. Because I think the Zimmer part, if it, at least to me, I'm thinking could have been the whole uh, Gwen Stacy, Spider-Man, uh, Green Goblin sequence. Kind of. I got some kind of a little bit of a Hans Zimmer out of that, but I mean, the rest of it, like the scene in Times Square when when they're fighting, when it's uh, um, Electro and Spider-Man, I don't, that dubstep type. I'm pretty sure that was I, the Pharrell Williams influence. I, I didn't dislike it. It just didn't fit. It just, it felt yeah. like it was, it was just not meant for that scene. Um you know, overall, I mean, it wasn't bad music. It just, I think it was a bad choice for that. <laughs> See, I actually kind of really enjoyed that for for the Electro stuff. I thought it fit his his kind of disassociated character pretty well. In addition to just f- feeling like electricity, like it, it had a very similar aural feeling to the visual feeling you had of seeing his powers, at least for me. So I actually like that. There was one musical cue that I really did not like in the movie, and that was the flutes or whatever, when you had the pre-electro um, Max Dillon. Mm. That was bizarre and fit into a lot of the other things I didn't like about that same set of scenes. It, but aside from that cue, I actually really did enjoy the music in this I movie. know what you're saying, that flute-type thing. It made me think of the 66 Batman series. Anytime you saw the villains behind the scenes up to some kind of hijinks, you know? that that yeah. That's exactly what that felt like. And, I, yeah, I agree with you. That was a bit weird. And I agree about the dubstep, given that electric 
feeling for electro it's it's not the dubstep itself it's the way the musical flow went during those scenes as far as it just didn't feel like it felt like two two currents going against each other and that's that's where i had the problem with it during those scenes and again it wasn't a, a huge takeaway from the scene itself it just it, it felt a little weird for me it was the and see for me oh go ahead was, it, for me it's the voice you know it was just like hearing and i get that it was trying to i'm assuming whether trying the point they were trying to make was that electro is kind of like hearing voices and because he's tapped into kind of the electrical grid he's kind of picking this up and he's you know for the most part kind of lost his mind he's you know having a little bit of a trouble grasping reality and so you kind of hear those whispers and that you know that 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 you know dialogue in the background of that music that's what did it for me it wasn't so much even the music itself but it was it was just that and it it just like i said it just seemed tonally very different to you know kind of the orchestral typical you know regular score that they were going with if if the whole movie abandoned a more traditional score and went for more of a, you know, of, of a kind of a modern pop music take um, for a score in general. I don't think this would have stood out, but it was, it was just like one piece in, in the big, in the big picture. And it, like I said, I, I tend to, when I go into a movie, especially a sequel, you know, is it picking up on visual cues from the first one? Can I tell tonally this is kind of the same, you know, they're just making changes based on this particular, you know, either these villains or these characters or these situations. And I just, I felt like the scores on these two movies were just like completely, you know, separate from each other. Well, who did the score of the first one? Was that Sylvester? I'm actually looking that up now because I don't recall. What really, in addition to just the flutes being bad in the, to, to, to jump back for that to a second, to jump back to that for a second rather, um, in addition to the flutes being bad in the Max Dillon scenes, they really reminded me of that 1960s goofy kitschiness of the Raimi films, which really took me out of it and really bothered me because of the many, many things I don't like about the Raimi trilogy, that was one of them, just how kitschy and all shucks it was, and, and that really in addition to the fact that I didn't like that particular music cue, it made me think of that, and it stuck out in the movie, because aside from that and a couple other minor things, it did not have that feel anywhere, which was good. Um, but where it did have that feel, it really stood out. Yeah, James Horner did the score on the first one. James Horner, that's right. Yeah. Um, and he was stuck in a corner this time, so he couldn't get to it. Yeah. Nice. But to me, him and Zimmer are of the same caliber as far as people scoring films um i'm i'm just wondering if like i said if if there there wasn't as much of a collaborative effort between the, the people scoring it and, and to me that's kind of weird it, I, I haven't paid that close attention to to scores over the years but it always seemed to me like there was one person scoring a film or that was in charge of it and here lately films seem to have two or three people scoring it is a little bit out of the ordinary. I, I don't think you're wrong about the um, the dubstep requiring a lot of that um, extra look because that is a very specific style. It's not something that's it, – it, don't get me wrong. It is built off of other styles of music, but there's something very specific about it that if you don't do it right, you can tell. And I don't 
have the impression that, you know, say Hans Zimmer has a lot of experience with producing dubstep, but somebody who does, like Pharrell Williams, uh, would be able to, to be brought in and do that in a way that sounds authentic to the genre, but also that fit well with, you know, a film. And and here, you know, not, not to harp on it again, but I really do feel like, especially visually, it was edited perfectly, which also might be one of the reasons why it came off as strange in tonally in terms of the score. It was edited not to a musical piece so much as it was edited to what was happening in the scene, specifically the use of his powers and not not the the um, the vocal subtext because I agree that was very different, but the actual um, electric sounds of it was edited to his use of his powers which did give it a very different feel from any other musical score in a movie I've heard. You know, yes, it's often um, scored to what's happening in the scene, how it's being edited, but not often so specifically to something as someone using their powers in a film that I've noticed anyway. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. Um, So that that kind of rounds out the crew, uh, starting with the cast. So again, we've kind of got returning uh, Andrew Garfield, as Peter Parker, Spider-Man and Emma Stone as Gwen Stacy uh, and then Sally Field as Aunt May. And we've even got a couple. I, I don't know if it's it. I, I think they actually did use Dennis Leary to to shoot the stuff for this movie, didn't they? I, I don't think it was just stuff they pulled I, from from the previous flicks or the. Fl- I was curious movie. about that. I, I'm not too sure because it it seemed very familiar, like it could have been stock from the first film. But I don't know. I mean, they did give him the credit in the in the at the end of the film, so I don't know. Yeah, I think I just watched the the first film the day before, and I'm pretty sure that was all new stuff. He looked a little bit older. His haircut was a little bit different. Um, I don't think it was just repurposed stock, although that would have been certainly an option. Um, but again, he was just there, kind of as <clears throat> the ghost of Captain Stacy, more than he was anything else. Um, right. But Andrew Andrew Garfield, I, I, you know, we we talked about this when we talked about the last one. Uh, I I really enjoy his Peter Parker and his Spider Man. I like that he's has some aloofness to him. I like that he has that jokey element that uh, you know that we get from the comics. Um, you know, I, at the time I was pretty happy with Tobey Maguire's performance. I think he had the look a little old, maybe, but but had the look, uh, but the crying Peter Parker, the crying Spider-Man just kind of, that guy kind of got old, uh, you know, after a while. And so it's kind of nice to see somebody that's, um, you know, happier to be in this position and happier to be with this character and just really, you could tell he's having fun with it. And I, I never got that sense that Tobey Maguire was really having fun with it. Yeah. Uh, I've, I, I, I liked Tobey Maguire when those films came out, came out. I thought that he did a good job. I didn't like the emo Spider-Man at all, emo Peter Parker. It, 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 it really detracted from the character quite a bit for me. But at the time, that's like the best that we've had for a Spider-Man film ever. And I, I enjoyed it. But once the first Amazing Spider-Man came out and, and continuing on into this one, Andrew Garfield is playing Peter Parker and Spider-Man just how I remember him on the page from the seventies and eighties, you know, just the way, even, even as much as now is just how he's got the little quips going on. He's it's constant, you know, mixing the comedy with the, like you said, having fun being Spider-Man. Um, and I, 
to me, I just I I enjoy him in the role way more than uh, I mean Tobey Maguire. To me, it now seems almost inferior performance in comparison to how Garfield plays Spider Man. And I'm a huge fan of Garfield in the role and Emma Stone in her role. I, I think the two of them work together extremely well. And you know, I've heard the complaint many places for both the first and and now the second film that. The Spider-Man's too cocky, he's not nerdy enough, he's not enough of a wallflower. Look, folks, I get it. In the comics, for a very short while, when he was introduced, Peter Parker was, or Peter Palmer, depending on uh, which particular issue you're looking at, was, you know, a terribly written, bland wallflower, etc., who only had any confidence when he was in the Spider-Man suit, and aside from that, people just walked all over him. I get that. For a very short period, that's who Peter Parker was. And we got three entire movies of nothing but that Peter Parker from the Raimi trilogy. And guess what? The comics aren't written like that anymore, because that's not an interesting character. And I'm kind of thrilled that the Amazing Spider-Man, well, what will be a trilogy, but the two movies right now, have kind of skipped over that, he was a little bit of a wallflower, not as much. He's more of a modern nerd than uh, than that type of character in the 1960s. And we've just jumped to, hey, do you know the Peter Parker you know and love and not the one who existed for five issues in 1964? That's the Peter Parker we're going to give you in these movies. And I'm extremely thankful for that because I have no interest in that other Peter Parker. Um, and I don't think that many other people do either, no matter how much they complain that... Uh, Andrew Garfield wasn't that for longer than five minutes in the first movie. Well, my first introduction to Spider-Man was in like 76, I think, 77, when I was watching reruns of the late 60s uh, Spider-Man cartoon. And this Spider-Man relates more to what I remember of that cartoon Spider-Man, which eventually, once I was able to read, got me into reading Spider-Man comics, which the stories were very much like what we're seeing in these last two films. And I'd say the comics I read every week or, you know, every other week, depending on how often they're published of Spider-Man, this is that Spider-Man as well. And I think they've done a really good job capturing kind of a Spider-Man for all seasons. There you to go. Borrow a there you go. Than, than just, you know, the Spider-Man of 1964 or 1965. You know, it's, this is the Spider-Man you've been reading for decades. Well, like you said yeah, before. and you talked about Emma Stone as Gwen Stacy. I couldn't think of anybody more perfect than than her and the way she portrayed it. I mean, especially in the first film, but even in this film, it's like Gil Kane's drawings stepped right off of the page. Uh, you know, some of the different things that, that you see. I um, At this point, being as late as we're recording this and, and whatnot, are we okay to spoil things or... Oh yeah, these episodes are full blown spoilers. Yeah, we we don't okay. hold anything back. I I I was a little, even though I expected it, I was a little disappointed that they went ahead with the death of Gwen Stacy in this film. I was really hoping that maybe they would start save that to the beginning of the next film or something along those lines. I wasn't ready to let go of that character yet. Um, that's my only complaint about the entire Gwen Stacy. Uh, storyline in this film because the rest of it I think was pretty much flawless when it comes to that character let me hit you with a counterpoint though because I, I get exactly what you're saying you're not ready to, to get, let go of that character yet because she is fantastic in the role 
but isn't that kind of the perfect time to do it when you're not ready to let her go any more than Peter is? I didn't say it wasn't perfect timing from a storytelling standpoint. I'm just saying from my selfish me, who both loves the character Gwen Stacy and I'm, I'm absolutely almost to the point of stalkerish in love with Emma Stone, <laughs> uh, I'm not ready to let go. <laughs> okay, well, okay, then I can appreciate that, you know, and I'm glad you're honest about it, you know, because I, I do think, I totally agree with you. I would love to see 10 films with both of them as those characters, but from a story perspective, this was the time to do it, and man, did it hurt. Well, and the yeah. fact that the two of them have a relationship off screen, it made the chemistry stick out even more as just genuine in this film, and it just, it was, even though I knew it was coming, it broke my heart when that happened. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm kind of the, the, I'm kind of in Rich's camp with this. I, it seems like, okay, they killed a Stacy off in the first one, now they're killing a Stacy in the second one, but I mean, those two events, relatively speaking, happen close together in the comics, too, so true, it's, it's true. not like, yeah, it's not like this is out of, you know, way out of bounds. Plus, how many movies do you really think we're going to get with these characters? You know, maybe four if we're lucky. And what would be worse is if, if say it's four. Say it's four and then Garfield's like, look, I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm ready to move on to something else. You don't want her dying in, like, the fourth movie and then some other actor come in after the fact and have to deal with it. So I, I, I guess if you're going to have to rip the Band-Aid off, I guess now is as good as time as any to do it. Um, and I, I think part of me was thinking maybe they would do it in the third movie, you know, that I, I, I really thought eventually they would do it, but I was really thinking, well, maybe they'll do it in the third movie. So when it actually, or when I actually found out that it happened, I, I, a friend of mine kind of accidentally spoiled it, uh, on me, but I thought, well, you know, that, that's kind of, uh, unsuspecting. So, um, I'm sure there are plenty of people that went into the theater and they were just really stunned that they, they went that, that far to do it. So... Well, um, but and that that's that takes me back to my point earlier about the critics and whatnot is there was so much criticism about how cheesy the 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 way she died was and that they I don't know there were a lot of criticisms about her death and I'm thinking they couldn't have done it any more perfect uh, unless they actually had Norman being the Green Goblin you know I mean. Yeah. Pretty much to me, they paid a very, very good homage to what was written in those comic books and wh the way it was portrayed in there while making it relevant to the storyline and to today in this film. And um, yeah, and what you were saying, I thought it would be much better for them to start the third film off at a down note of having this happen at the beginning of the film and then him having to work through dealing with the Sinister Six or whatever it is they're going to deal with. Um, through the film while dealing with the death of Gwen just happening. But, I mean, I guess they still can kind of start from that point since this happened towards the end of the film. So, Yeah, I mean, I guess the only argument I'd have for doing it at the beginning of another movie is you kind of start the movie on a downer, which may not, you know, from a, you know, a, a flow perspective may not be the best, uh, the, the best, best route to take. But uh, it, it worked for Return of the Jedi. <laughs> uh one of the uh, one of the things i'll say uh, about uh about gwen stacy's character in this movie is i uh, the one the one thing that kind of took me aback was the fact that she seemed like she was smarter than peter and i guess 
for putting my comic book hat back on, I consider Peter Parker like one of the smartest people in in the Marvel universe. You know, maybe not quite, or definitely not quite Reed Richards, Tony Stark smart, but still up there pretty high. And I just I just don't picture Gwen Stacy as being smarter than him. Um, but but that. But wasn't she always established as smarter than him, like better test scores and such? Uh, in in this movie or in they the met comics? in college, if I remember correctly, right? In, in the comic specifically, uh, I I mm, I don't know about that. I know they just didn't I, make her a, a dumb blonde, but I I don't recall them portraying her as being over you know more smart than uh, than he was. But I could be they totally por- wrong. They portrayed her as smart. Um, and to the point of, I, I remember going back, there were some, de- not debates, but little, you know, friendly competition between the two of them in the comic, but it wasn't really, it didn't get very highlighted because Gwen came and, and went relatively quickly in the comic books. But I feel that in the first Amazing Spider-Man film, they kind of set it up that way, that the two of them have yeah. are, are kind of competing on the same level and that she kind of might have a little edge on him, at least from some of the scenes when he first encounters her at Oscorp and whatnot in the first film. Uh, I, I kind of get the sense that if she's not smarter than him, they're on a level playing field. And, Which I like because unlike most love interest characters in a superhero movie or a superhero story, she brings something to the table other than just the women in refrigerator, uh, you know, possibilities yeah which of course we kind of get here i think i would disagree that it was done tax or tactlessly but um you know she she actually does bring something to the table to make her an interesting character in her own right and not just something to be killed off to make their hero you know emo right way, right no way I'm, more than, I, i'm with you there yeah way <laughs> more than what's her name and 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 mary jane in the first three films uh cursed yeah cursed right, dunst. yeah uh I, i'm not I, I, I like her as an actress, but uh, she was all wrong. And that portrayal of Mary Jane, I, that's another thing that really got downplayed after these films came out. <laughs> I, I really wish that you could take Andrew Garfield and Emma Stone and just extract them out of these movies and put them into the Raimi movies. Um, I've, I've said that before, but I, I stand by that. Uh, okay, so moving on, uh, we get Jamie Foxx as Electro slash Max Dillon. Um, I really had high hopes for his character and his portrayal. I think they made him too much of a buffoon as the Max Dillon character at the beginning of the movie. And the Electro stuff, to me, just really felt flat. I just think the dialogue was really bad. I don't think they used him really well. I think they dispatched him pretty... It was almost like a non-event. I don't know. I just felt like when 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 they and I guess technically you could say maybe they didn't even kill him off because he could technically reform himself or come back in some way, uh, just like he he did, you know, at, at a couple points during the movie. But it just felt like when they did it, it was kind of a it was kind of a non-event. Like it wasn't a big deal, um, you know, like a like a big obstacle they overcame when when he was beaten for the last time. Um, but but yeah, some of that, some of that Max Dillon stuff, or even the early Electro stuff when he was being held up in Oscorp, and that crazy guard was like in his face. That was like Batman and Robin level camp in my book. I mean, it was it was really really bad. 
I, I totally agree with you on, well, let, let me, I, unfortunately, this is, or maybe fortunately, I have to break up the character into several different aspects because some of them for Electro slash Max Dillon, I really liked. And some, I'm totally with you, just felt like Batman and Robin or Raimi trilogy level stuff of just goofy, weird schlock. But Max Dillon by himself, he had a few scenes where it was just him, didn't like it at all. You had those flute notes. <sighs> Um, literally, you had, you know, just really weird acting and weird cues. I get what they were trying to do with showing him to be, you know, completely out of his mind. And some of that worked, but it worked much better in the scenes where he was interacting with other people, be it um, Alistair Smythe or Gwen Stacy or Peter. You know, those scenes where he was showing his mental instability and loneliness through other characters worked really well for me. So I didn't like him by himself as Max Dillon. I did like him with other people as Electro, or as as uh, as Max Dillon as Electro. I actually I liked the voice. I liked his his delivery of the good lines at least. I liked how they used his powers, and I liked what they did with with Peter through him. But again, some of the dialogue for even the Max even the Electro parts fell really flat, especially the stuff with Doctor Kafka. Um, yeah. So there was a lot of good. A lot of really interesting stuff, but it kind of got overshadowed by just some of the weird schlock they threw in there on top. I I couldn't have said it better myself, because that's pretty much what I was going to say, and that's how I felt about it. I liked his performance as Electro. I liked the way they did Electro. I don't feel that he fell so flat, like you're saying, Russ, but the the Max Dillon stuff, or Edward Nigma, however you want to look at it, uh, very much overshadowed anything that was good about this character and and this goes back to what you said about the writing and you can write a character that is disconnected from reality without it having to be so campy and goofy i mean i you see it on these procedural tv shows all the time of, of these nuts that are just basically they're not in touch with reality at all but somehow they're functioning day to day and when they can write television better a television criminal better uh that's gone insane better than they do for a feature film like this that's saying a lot and it and it was really highlighted by the fact that there was a few moments where it really shined through and really worked well and those made it all the worse when the rest of the time it didn't right. work for right. me. Yeah. Like that scene between, you know, his first scene as Electro, his first interaction with Spider-Man as Electro, I loved that scene and see, showing his pain through, you know, the, the use of the, the screens and his spotlight that he finally had being taken away by Spider-Man, the one guy he thought was his friend, you know, that brief moment, I was, you know, I actually felt emotion about it and felt it worked really well. But everything else just, you know, just kind of worked against it and really just pointed out how, you know, they were all the worse for how good it could have been. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I like the Times Square scene a lot. I, I thought it worked well. Um, I And to get back to your point, uh, Jordan, about the whole dichotomy of when he was alone versus when he wasn't, the scene with him and Gwen in the elevator, I thought was was really well done. You know, here's a guy. Oh yeah. You know that's that's used to not being able to connect with other humans because they they shun him. And here's Gwen, who's just a pretty genuine kind of person and doesn't want to be judgmental. And you know, legitimately is reaching out to this guy and and just you know having small talk, but also just trying to make him feel like he's not you know the scum of the earth. 
uh, and how he ended up taking that. I, I, th- I thought that that worked pretty well. So Dane DeHaan as Harry Osborn slash the Green Goblin. Um, Dane DeHaan in general, I think, kind of has a weird speech pattern. Like he just the way he communicates is a little different than a lot of actors. I mean, I, I kind of saw the same thing in Chronicle. And it was a little more maybe exaggerated in this. Um, I think the biggest complaint I have about Harry is we didn't really get to know him. I mean, no. he was in a few he was in a few scenes, and they tried to get the point across of the fact that basically he's just a big screw up, and you know his you know daddy didn't love me, and you know pushed me away, and all that kind of stuff. But uh, I just I just really don't feel like we got to know him well enough. To me, they spent more time character development on Paul Giamatti's Rhino character than they did on this one. And this was probably the pivotal character that they needed to really give us some development behind uh, considering what happens at the end of the film. Um, I thought he was a poor choice. I had just seen, I, I'm a big Metallica fan, so uh, they just did a release of, I think it's called Through the Never, and it's just basically yeah. this film. Yeah. And he plays this assassin-type character thing throughout the entire... I, I, wait, 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 wait. Did you watch the same movie I did? Assassin? I don't know. He's a roadie. Not fr- This must be something different than... The thing that has all the animation behind it and whatnot. What? Oh, we must have seen different things. Through the Never, the feature length, docu, it's concert movie slash post-apocalyptic quest movie. Well, there's there's Is that, it? but there's the, the animated stuff that has him built oh, into it. I didn't see it. that. I just it, saw the movie. It, it, was, it was on Netflix with the movie when I watched it. Oh. I, I don't know, but I just, I, I, I to... That part aside, anyway, I just, I don't like him as an actor. Uh, I didn't, I, but he was a poor casting choice, but it, it, it boils down to bad dialogue and bad direction as well, like I was saying earlier. But we got zero development. I mean, we've barely had any idea of motivations behind Norman Osborn himself other than he's sick and dying and he's he'll, he'll go to any lengths to find a way to live on and we quickly got to that point with Harry without really learning much about him and they it seemed that they pinned a lot on a younger relationship between him and Peter and we really got zero setup for that to where I didn't really give a damn about the character. I mean, I like Dane DeHaan in the few things I've seen him in, but I didn't like him in this. I'll agree with you on that. I think it did come down a lot to the direction. Some of his line deliveries were just strange, but also it weren't helped by the fact that some of those lines were just really bad. Um I I liked I liked him as Harry fifty fifty. Some of the stuff worked just like with Electro or Max Dillon. Some of it worked, some of it didn't. But as the Green Goblin, I thought the look was really cool. I really like how they kind of mixed um the six one six with more of a military feel, but it still had that same aesthetic as the six one six goblin. But his line delivery, like his laugh as the goblin was great. But both the line delivery and the lines he was given to deliver just did not work for me as the Goblin. Yeah, I did like the look 
of him as the goblin. And I did like the laugh, like you said, but everything else just, it, it fell apart in my opinion. The Green Goblin is just one of those villains, I think, that it, it it's almost impossible to to do correctly because something you know something's going to be off with the green goblin if you try and do the mask like they did i mean that was one of the things that i really had a problem i love the first raimi spider-man i love it um it's it's definitely a top tier comic movie to me but that green goblin stuff i mean just the look was really bad um but it's it's almost like i said one of those things where it's almost impossible to get it right because either you do makeup in a crazy face or you do a, a mask, and either way, it's not going to look right. Um, so you pretty much just have to go with, you know, what's what's the character design we're looking to achieve with this character? Um, you know, how does it fit in with, with how we're developing the look and feel of, of all the other villains that, that we're dealing with, and you just got to go with it. And it either works or it doesn't work, or you it's something you can deal with. Agreed. Uh let me do a couple quick hits here, and then uh, I, I'll, I'll hit another one. Um, so we got Colm Fior as Donald Mencken, who's kind of like new CEO of Oscorp, dealing with it from um, from because Norman's so ill. Felicity Jones as somebody named Felicia, and I know there was a lot of speculation that she was Felicia Hardy. It was never never really confirmed one way or the other whether she was or she wasn't. Um, and B.J. Novak, which I thought was an interesting choice. But it totally is. Uh, yeah, as Alistair Smythe. Um, and Who I liked. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was kind of a, you know, a douchey, you know, upper-tier executive kind of guy. I, I didn't really get the Alistair Smythe, you know, Spider Slayer kind of vibe off of B.J. Novak. Uh, so I don't know if they just chose the name to be a wink and a nod to the uh, to everybody else or or what the deal was with that. Well, I'm a big fan of B.J. Novak. I think I like him as an actor, a comedian, a stand-up comedian, um, as a producer. Everything he's done, he he really puts a lot into it. And I I kind of felt like his chastising of Max Dillon was a little over the top in the way the lines were delivered. But then again, knowing Alistair Smythe, knowing what's down the road, it kind of fits. Yeah. Felicity Jones, I thought I thought was fine. Like I said, um, I mean, Jordan, you're pretty pretty well convinced that she's going to be Felicia Hardy. I mean, I think there's no reason to have a character in your universe that you are very open about trying to develop into a much larger universe about Spider-Man. There's no reason to have a character named Felicia who's female and very attractive and connected to the rest of the plot. And not have her be fully. I, I thought that I've read online somewhere. Of course, you know the internet is full of truths, but I thought I've read somewhere that she is set to be the Black Cat in the future. I mean, there's speculation, but there, you know, there's nothing official about it yet. Um, but it's you know, just like everything else, you know. Why have Alistair Smythe? Anybody could be chastising um, Max Dillon, but you've got hundreds of characters in the Spider-Man universe, why create a new one to fill that role when you can have, you know, Alistair Smythe? Even if Alistair Smythe never creates the Spider-Slayers in this series of movies, he's he's there, just like, you know, Betty or, you know Betty Brant was in, um, you know, the Raimi trilogy, you know, show, you know, where John Jameson, did we ever see you know, the Man-Wolf? No. Right. We saw John Jameson, 
you know, and have having those characters there to fill a role, I think is smart. Even if you don't end up using them, at least you have the option. Right. Um, and Comb Fior's Donald Mencken, I, I thought was just, he was what he was. I mean, douchey Oscorp executive that has his own agenda and is trying to forward his own position. I mean, he played that just as well as, you know, probably 10 other people. So, you know, n- nothing, nothing overly praiseworthy, but he definitely, he definitely got the job done is I guess what I'm getting at. It was weird to me that I don't think they ever say his name in the movie and he looks so much like, um, now I'm going to blank on the character's name, but, uh, the, 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 uh, bird guy, the vulture, Jeez, the vulture. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> he looks so much like the vulture that it was almost distracting to me. Adrian Toomes, thank you. Uh, Jim, let's uh, count you in, and we'll uh, we'll add you in. Uh, Timestamp, 5105. Three, two, one, record. Huh? Huh? Okay, no problem. Stop, collaborate, and listen. All right, three. Two, one, record. And joining us live via satellite, Mr. Jim Dietz. Welcome to the program, Jim. I am on a satellite. How did you know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm on the JLA satellite looking down. on. I'm on monitor duty tonight. Nice. So, <laughs> uh, so we're pretty much running up. So I heard you guys were here to talk about Godzilla. Yeah. All right. I'm, I'm, all, I'm psyched to talk about Godzilla. Let's talk, let's talk about it. I thought Brian Cranston... Oh, wait, no. I'm on the wrong show, huh? Say, I, I haven't seen Godzilla yet, so... <laughs> oh, it was really good. Oh, this is Amazing Spider-Man 2. Okay. Yes. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm with you. Go ahead. Uh, so, rounding out the cast, I guess the, the last person that we haven't really talked about too much is Sally Field as Aunt May. And I think if there's one thing that this movie did above better in the second movie than the first movie is giving Aunt May more to do giving her I I was a little disappointed that they didn't use her as well in the first movie and I thought they used her very well in this movie I really liked the the bits between Sally Field and Andrew Garfield I really you know it was really kind of nice seeing her Think of Peter as a son. I mean, we kind of get that in the comics, but, you know, it's usually played by what's perceived as like some octogenarian in the comics and, you know, just kind of like going, oh, Peter, and, you know, kind of patting him on the head kind of thing. But to see. I like how you use the Rosemary Harris accent. Yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But but to see someone that just really says, you're my son, you're, you're, you, you know, I raised you and really. I mean that scene was really powerful in in my book, and I, I'm I really appreciate that they gave the two of them the opportunity to act off of each other in in an, in a more emotional way um, in 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 this film even more so than they really did. I mean you got you you got the gist of in the Raimi movies what the May Peter relationship was, but it was not I, I it was not the same in in this movie. It was some of the better written dialogue in this movie, for sure. Yes. Between those two. Yes. Oh, absolutely. And like Gwen Stacy, you know, we said it before, she exists for more than just being someone to save. She exists yes. almost like her own individual character. Ooh. You know, fancy that. 
and I love that. And it was nice that she, she seemed to be like the she seemed to be like the crux of a lot of uh, jokes, though. You know yeah. I mean? Like, what are you doing? Why did you turn the laundry all red and blue last time when you did it? Blah blah, you know all this stuff. It just seemed like she was just a setup for a lot of, um, like uh, you know, offhand one-liners in a lot of places. But uh, one hand, uh, but one-liners that worked, you know. I mean, for the most part, and that she she had that emotional payoff too. So I don't I don't mind if it's mostly jokes if you also have that payoff uh, emotionally. And they didn't make her a plot device either. I mean, it, it would be real easy to fall into the trap of oh she was kidnapped or oh she was assaulted or attacked or you know somehow caught up in all this nonsense that's going on. Um, and. They didn't use her for that, and I'm actually pretty thankful that they they didn't go that route. Did you guys talk about uh, Campbell Scott and Emmett David since the Parkers at no. all? No, I was saving. I, I, thought... I've kind of got a tirade to go on when we talk about the. <laughs> the oh, okay. Well, I don't want. I don't. By, by all means, don't let me block your tirade, Russ. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Now, but talking about cast of characters, what was missing was odd to me because we've now gone two films without a J. Jonah Jameson. And I was really expecting to see him in this film. Um, I'm wondering, I, are they going to leave him out of this storyline altogether? or? Well, we got reference to him a couple times, and I thought it was really funny how the, the couple references we got, like one of them, Peter said, yeah, the guy, I forget how, exactly how he put it, but he said, yeah, the guy, oh, uh, he pays me a wage. You know, yeah, it would be a good wage for 1961. And I thought that was... That oh was a yeah, nice I forgot about that. I forgot about yeah, that. Okay, he, yeah. And they they referenced him a couple a couple times, but I, I think I I can't remember if I heard Mark Webb actually say that or somebody else say it. And I think the problem they have is it anybody else they cast is going to be compared to um uh to J.K. Simmons. J.K. Simmons, and that's going to be hard shoes to fill. And if they have him reprise that role then it's going to be odd because it's kind of that tie to the Raimi flicks. So I don't know if maybe purposely they were kind of distancing that out to let more time pass between the two. Um, I I have a sneaking suspicion that we'll see him in a third movie, but that's just me. I really didn't miss him, though. I mean, I didn't miss that angle of Peter's life very much at all in this movie because there was so much else going on. Right. Yeah, yeah plot-wise, it didn't really fit, so it, you know, there would be no reason to have him in the movie as much as I would like to see the character. Yeah, no, I'm not saying I missed him. It's just I really expected him to show up at some point in the first two films. But the reference, I forgot about that reference, and I would be fine with the same actor playing him because he was the quintessential J. Jonah Jameson, and I mean... You know, it can work. I mean, you had Michael Goff as uh, uh, um, the butler in all four of the Batman films. You know, why can't you do that with J. Jonah Jameson? But those were technically all in the same continuity, weren't they? Yeah. Were they? Were they really? (laughs) Why don't they cast Jack Black as J. Jonah Jameson? (laughs) Yeah, I, I mean, really, if they do, whoever they cast, I almost feel like they need to go a very different direction. You know, something you don't expect to both play up and play down at the same time, the differences. No, you're not going to top J.K. Simmons, but you can do something very different. Yeah. I've got it. Aziz Ansari. (laughs) Actually, why not? I wouldn't hate that. You said you want to take it in a different direction? I would not hate that. He could do it. Yeah, but then I think of his Indian father marrying Aunt May. Um, Of course... (laughs) 
that's recent comics, but anyway. Oh, that's true. Well, but yeah, <laughs> but you know, you can you can do any you can still do that, you know. Not that I think they're going to any, at any time soon in the movies, you know, that's a very recent plot development in the comics, but Yeah. Um All right, so that's cast, crew, money, all that good stuff. So diving into the to the movie proper a little bit more in, into the to the specific plot details. Um I I will say this about the movie in general. It was very uneven to me. I think the highs were very very high. Um I think the good stuff was some of the best stuff I've seen in a superhero movie, but I think the lows were just really low. Um and I and I think it just made for a very unbalanced flick. The biggest thing I think I think it was a little too long, which I don't normally say about movies. I'm I'm a big I love long movies, but I really think that they could have cut everything, almost everything related to uh, Richard and Mary Parker out of this movie, especially that whole opening sequence. I mean, they they did that 10-minute opening sequence in the airplane to basically tell us nothing new, to tell us every, you know, what we knew from before. Um, and then that bit with the subway car, I think that was all time we could have gotten back to make a, a bit of a tighter a tighter flick. I think, if nothing else, they may have been able to take some of that time and develop Harry Osborn into a more robust character. Or, if they were going to delve into backstory, you know, show something of Peter and Harry when they were kids, you know, to, to kind of give a little more context. Um, but I think that movie would have been just fine if it would have opened up straight up with... Peter, you know, falling through the sky, like like after we got the you know kind of the opening credit scene and the 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 airplane sequence, I think that would have been a great opening to this film, especially given how we left the last film. So I I just really didn't think that was necessary in, in this movie. I think it just it didn't give us anything new, and it and it drug it down, in my opinion. I thought the whole Roosevelt reveal was was like not only like kind of ham fisted. But then when he, he goes down there and he hits the one button and then the whole thing lights up and turns itself on and boots itself up and, you know, it's all set, ready to go there at, like, the touch of one button. It was one of those, aw, oh, come on moments, you know? And there are a few of those in this movie, you know, where I just look at them, I'm like, aw, oh, come on, really? And that was, that was one that really stuck out for me. But I, I pretty much agree with what you're saying, Russ. Yeah, I, I, I felt the same way. I thought, I mean, I thought that there was some important tidbits of information that came out of that stuff, but it wasn't anything, like you said, that we already didn't understand from the first film. It just kind of expanded on it a little bit so that people could connect it between the two movies. But there was, it could have all been done between both sequences in, 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 in a much less time, like you said. And getting back to what you were saying, Jim, about Campbell Scott and M. Beth David, I, I think they were fine. I, I, I didn't have a problem with their performances, Richard and Mary Parker. I don't I don't think that was the negative. I think I think they, they played those roles just fine. I think they were they were great in, in what they were doing. I just think it was unnecessary. Right. If I can expand real quick on something else you were saying, you were saying about how it seemed very uneven. I mean, to me it almost seemed like the movie had ADD. It, it yeah. was like, you know, there were times when it was was being very heartfelt and very serious. There were times when it seemed very campy, almost like Joel Schumacher variety. Um, there were times where it was trying to be uh, a teenage romance. There was time where it was, where it was trying to be a big budget action film. It just seemed like it was all over the map. It didn't really seem like it set one tone for the whole movie. It just seemed like it was kind of all over the map to me. Well, and I think that some of that, at least from things that I read, 
um, comes from notes from the studio and other things as far as, oh, well, you know what? We do want to do a Sinister Six movie. Let's start setting this stuff up. Oh, you know what? We want to also pay a nod to this because we want to pay off with another film later in this. Like like they, they were trying to last-minute world-build the way Marvel has done their cinematic universe for all these years. Um, it just seemed like, oh, let's throw this in there and let's throw that in there as setups for something down the line. And if we weren't reviewing this movie after Days of Future Past, I would agree with you. But they threw, I mean, everything in the kitchen sink into that movie and were able to not only sew up the continuity, fix what was broken, but also make it all fit and make sense. And the movie definitely had a certain tone to it. It had a certain homo- homogenousness to it, a certain style. This movie, like I said, it's, it, it just seemed like it was kind of all over. And I understand what you're saying. You know, they have to throw a lot in to set up their franchise or whatever. Granted, I agree that. But I'm talking more about the tone of the movie. Just like, it just seemed like it was going from one kind of movie to another kind of movie to another with, like, no transition at all. I mean, you went from that, I, I can give you a great example. You go from that um, that scene where, you know, Harry Osborne is trying to be a badass with the, the board of directors straight into the scene with Peter and Harry throwing stones. You know, like, he, he walks away from a board meeting to go throw rocks in a river with Peter. You know, and then you go straight from that to, like, this Jamie Foxx character character who reminded me frankly of of jim carrey in batman forever the character he played before he became the riddler just like that stereotypical kind of steve urkel slash rupert pupkin um you know um uh, you know obsessive geek i mean as soon as i saw that he had like newspapers you know stapled to his walls you know connected with yarn i was like oh my god how many times have we seen this trope you know I just, I just felt like it was kind of all over the map, scatter shot, and the parts of it. That, and Russ makes a really good point. The parts of it that were good were very, very good. The first ten or fifteen minutes, that whole opening sequence with the rhino, is probably the best Spider-Man sequence on film that I've seen, bar none. Raimi or Webb. I just thought it was perfect in tone, perfect in action. It was just awesome. But then other parts of it, it just made me roll my eyes, made me just want to, you know, embarrassed to be watching it. I mean, it just kind of was all over the map. The parts of it that were good, it was like the little girl with the curl in her hair. When when it was good, it was very, very good. But when it was bad, it was horrid. Yeah, I didn't... The only thing I'll say about the, the Rhino sequence, um, and I when we went over cast, I, I forgot to mention Paul Giamatta as Alexei Sestevich. Um, I, I was fine with... I think he was just maybe... I think they could have toned him down just a hair. He was a little too silly, I think. But... Yeah, but that whole opening sequence, you gotta admit, that, no, that was, was like the most. Yeah, absolutely. No, you're. That was like perfect right. tone, tone wise. I mean, it was it was light, you know, hearted. Spider Man was cracking wise, but he was all over it. It was full of action. I mean, and yes, he was over the top or whatever. But I mean, I thought I thought that really worked well. So I thought it worked a lot better than other parts of the movie. No, I agree. I agree. And I was fine with the Rhino suit at the end. Like I, I know, uh, you know, Brad had a big deal. You know, well, that's not the Rhino. Well, you can't have a guy in a suit you know, that he's fused to, it just, that's just ludicrous. I mean, that that just doesn't play. Um, so the fact that it was kind of this mechanized um, armor kind of thing, I thought was, was a, a great way to go about having that character in and doing it to where it's not absolutely ridiculous. Uh, so I was, I was totally fine, fine with that. Yeah. I liked the, the rhino. I, I thought it was a bit bulky like like i expected him to be a little smaller uh in comparison to the scene around him but um i i like the whole mech idea of it 
I, I mean, there's a lot of compromises you have to make when you translate from comic to film, obviously. I mean, we've talked about this before. I mean, you know, Wolverine's bright uh, blue and, and yellow suit is a good example. It looks great in a comic, but I think it would look terrible, you know, with right. Hugh, you know on Hugh Jackman. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I agree with you, Russ. Um, you know, Brad may, may hem and haw about it not being the rhino or whatever, but, I mean, if they were to actually have just a really big guy in a gray suit as, you know, per the rhino Silver Age, I don't think that would have worked on screen at all. I agree. No, I didn't. I didn't love the mech suit. I didn't hate the mech suit. But as I've made clear on uh, our various podcasts in the past, there's only ever been one good Rhino story in the in in the past ever. So it doesn't matter what he looks like to me so much as can they tell a good story with him. This was not an attempt to tell a good story or any story with him, but for what its role was, which was just to hey show that doesn't matter that there's only two movies in this universe so far. He's still fighting supervillains yes. and still stopping crime in the meantime. That was its intended purpose, and I think it definitely succeeded in that way. So I was thrilled with that. And I thought for the ending of the movie, having the whole Spider-Man No More sequence, how it was shot, and we can talk about that later, but I thought that all worked really well and to have a more lighthearted, goofy villain and, you know, Peter's return to form in that moment, I thought worked really, really well. So, again... The rhino is the rhino is the rhino. It's going to be what it's going to be, but how they used him was effective. And speaking of that sequence there at the end, I know we're jumping ahead a little bit. Uh, any other time that they've had some little kids step in kind of situation scene like that, it's been a little too over the top and it just, it's, oh, we're fitting this in for the awe factor, but. I don't know. In this one, it kind of worked for me. Oh, I agree. And and we didn't have the obligatory scene that's been in every single other Spider-Man movie so far. I think I talked about this on uh, Out and Out There and Nate, but of the the city of New York bands behind Spider-Man to defeat the supervillain, which always rubs me the wrong way. This was the closest thing to that in the movie, but it worked really well. It wasn't the city banding behind Spider-Man. It was Spider-Man banding behind the city in a way and banding behind this kid. And I thought that worked really well. Yeah. And I thought the way Webb used the the Rhino as a framing sequence, he definitely avoided the pitfalls that Raimi did in in Spider-Man 3 by trying to cram too many villains and too much backstory into the main plot line. I mean, he just threw the Rhino on the beginning of the end as a framing device. I thought that worked a lot, lot better than you're trying to to give you know proper screen time to all three yeah yeah i agree i agree with that the one bit that i really we kind of alluded to it earlier the one bit that i i also had a lot of problem with just from a this is really bad standpoint is at the beginning when they have electro locked up and that guard kind of gets in his face and is making fun of him and or the i guess it's the doctor it's not the guard um that was it dr kafka yeah, yeah. Who, for some reason, was male instead of female. I don't understand that. Yeah. And also a cartoon character instead of the actually intriguing character oh my God. that's been in the comics. It was so bad. I mean, it was so bad. I was like, I cannot believe. I mean, this is, and that's, I think that's what really, I, I just kept saying to myself, this is Schumacher Batman right here. I mean, like, did they learn nothing from, from those two movies? 
I see you're an evil Nazi scientist, and I raise you one. Hey, can I get someone from maintenance down here to help me with this open duct that happens to be over these mutated electric eels? Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, you're you're too much of an ineffective milk toast. We can't follow any security uh, or safety protocols for you, buddy. You're just gonna have to tough it out, you know. And there's no bo- Give me a break. In man. this whole that, that whole sequence just like rubbed me the wrong way. Yeah. It reminded me of it, it, that. Reminded me of Schumacher right there, big time. Well, yeah, it's like okay, Oscorp is this insanely large corporation this huge building providing all this power and there's nobody there like the power goes out and there's nobody there to fix it like there's no like nobody it's like really (laughs) everybody's gone home yeah that's exactly (laughs) what i thought i was like and the one guy that is there won't help him because he's such a nerd yeah i was like like, oh i'm gonna put my life in danger okay well you're a nerd i don't care bye yeah that i just really i wanted to punch somebody while i was Catching that because I was like, this is just like, I mean, I I understand suspension of disbelief. I know this is a comic book movie, but just when when people act in in normal situations in very stupid manner, it just it just makes me crazy. Just because it's a comic book movie doesn't mean it doesn't have to make sense in its own way. You know? And while yep. that entire sequence, every last bit, like you said, was unbelievable down to them not having people available to fix things and all that other stuff, the most uh, unbelievable or, or ridiculous part of about it uh, was the part I liked, and that was him falling into the eels situation. Yeah, it was a little campy, but, you know, this is a movie about a guy bitten by a radioactive spider. So I, I kind of liked that, but everything surrounding it was just dumb. And I liked why the eels, eels were there. The idea of Oscorp powering the city with genetically engineered animals, you know, as building off the plot of the first movie. I thought that was actually pretty cool. Um, it yes, it's really goofy, well but Spidey's it fits. Oh, I'm sorry. You know, no, I, I agree with you, Jim. It, it is kind of goofy, but it, it fits in that milieu of genetically engineered creatures <laughs> causing havoc. And if you yeah. think about, I was going to say, if you think about right, uh, Spidey's Rogues Gallery, I mean, they're mostly animal-based. The Vulture, the Rhino, right. Dr. Octopus. Or Craven the Hunter, you know, taking the the reverse of it, you know. Right. I mean, they're all, uh, all, a lot of his rogues gallery have an animal base, tying them all together like that was super smart. And at least he wasn't a lineman struck by lightning bolt. I mean, come on. No, yeah. This at least works for me better than that. Yeah, and I thought his costume was pretty decent. I mean, the the way they they did it was okay. I mean, there was a lot of stuff with, with Electro that I thought was really well done. I thought the Times Square stuff was really cool. I think the fight at the at the end in that power plant I thought was was pretty well done like I said I think he was dispatched a little too easily another somewhat eye-rolling moment I had was when Gwen shows up and she's like oh I know how to reset this thing I know how to do this and it's like okay so basically she was there to push a big red button I was like I was gonna say she's the only one that can push the giant red button yeah yeah (laughs) it's got biometrics to just her DNA so she has to push it (laughs) <laughs> she's the, she's the only one that's seen that Red and Stimpy episode to know what to do with the red button. Yeah. Um, I I thought, again, I thought the the Gwen and Peter stuff was really really well done. It was a little bit of the whole, I'm with you, I'm not with you, but I think they set that well enough up in the first movie that it made sense, and they did a pretty good job of showing time pass between like when they had when he decided he couldn't be with her anymore and then and then him coming back to her um and i like the fact that we kind of got like the it was you know the basically the montage sequence of the movie and 
you know, we got the impression that he just buried himself in being Spider-Man and also just kind of spying on her, but not in a creepy Superman Returns way, but in a, you know, I, I really care about you and I really want to make sure you're okay because um, if something happens to you, it's probably going to be because it's my fault, which ultimately, you know, came true. I mean, growing up in the 80s, oh, growing up in the 80s I have no problem with a montage sequence at all. Uh, and I wish more movies would use it. I, I remember we talked about Captain America, the first Avenger, you know, when they had the montage in there to kind of give the idea that Cap fought a lot in the war and did a yeah. lot of things. They didn't have to show each, you know, individual battle. They could just show us a little bit. And I wish, you know, more, they'd use that more often rather than having to rely on, you know, time, you know, passing in real time. And, and I totally get him checking in and spying up on uh, Emma Stone. I totally understand that motive. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> I thought... Welcome to a long box of curves. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I guess let's let's talk about the ending. So they made the bold decision to go ahead and qu- kill off Gwen. And uh, let me tell you, I thought that was almost expertly done. I mean, it... Webb did a great job of amping up the tension because you kept telling yourself, okay, are they going to do it? Are they not going to do it? Are they going to do it? Um, and just the way that sequence took place, that that tight corridor, the fight, you know, him and the goblin kind of going at it. I just, I really thought it was it was well done and and just heartbreaking. I mean, when when he gets to the bottom, they made it very clear that it it was pretty much. I guess you could say he killed her, but he or Spider Man killed her, but he didn't really. I mean, it was it was kind of do or die. Um, but just the, the way the slow mo effect worked with the web going through all the sprockets, like he timed it perfect, you know. But she was just going too fast and hit the bottom. But it it was just really heartbreaking to see that happen. I'd be interested to know if there was some. I mean, I don't know personally, but who saw this movie who isn't a comic book person. But I'd be interested to know what the reaction would be if somebody who just came to the movie cold and didn't realize that. You know, Gwen Stacy had so famously died in the comics back in the day. Yeah. Uh, what kind of impact it would, that would have had on them. Um, I know we're all biased and we all knew going in that, you know, Gwen Stacy had had that history in the comics. So, I mean, whether or not they would pay that off in the movie, we didn't know. But, you know, we kind of had that in the back of our minds. At least I did anyway. Um, I have this habit of, after I've seen a film on opening weekend and whatnot, where I'll kind of stick around and try to talk to some of the people uh, uh, that, that were in the theater with me, uh, you know, have you read the comics before? Do you know much about the character outside of the movies and, and whatnot? And it was kind of surprising to me how many people did not know a 41 year old story, uh, about that character or, or that Gwen Stacy was a, was Peter's first love in the comic books. Um, and there was quite a few people that they were just absolutely shocked that they, they killed the character off and, and whatnot. And they had no idea it was coming or anything like that. So, and I was in a pretty big theater and there were quite a few people that just, they, they were shocked. And even me, you know, as a longtime comic reader and huge Spidey fan, I wasn't sure they were going to do it. And, you know, even up to the moment that it happened in the movie, I, I had my suspicions and there was definitely theories going around, but I'd specifically stayed away from spoilers. And man, that, that, slam of you know you know physical literal slam of her hitting the ground with you know the moment the web hits her or the moment her you know she snaps back i don't even you know normally i would in a situation like that not do the same thing that rich is saying but i would at least 
you know, listen around the theater for the reactions. I was so, you know, the, the air was knocked so much out of me that I couldn't even do that in the theater because it was just brutal. I am so thankful, too, that they didn't do the typical, well, she's not quite dead yet, so she's going to say that one last, you know. And I thought they were going to do yeah, that, too. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. there's a moment where he's like, oh, you're not dead. And I was like, wait, she's not? And then, oh, no, okay, it's just his own grief saying you can't be dead, not that she's literally not dead. No, yeah. they made so the fact that, that the sound mixing was very well done to the point of that snap of her neck was very prominent. <laughs> oh, so. yeah. But they could have, you know, had her be a paraplegic or something like that. I mean, if you want to go really dark eh. with it, I'm glad yeah. they didn't. Less but. of a struggle. But I mean, that's part of, I think, the guilt, right, is he didn't, you know, this happened and. Like, they never got to say anything else to each other. They never, like, he never got to kind of have that final word. It's just, like, the last thing she, the last, you know, thought going through her head was fear, you know, that she's falling and she's not going to make it. And uh, to me, that's way more powerful than doing the whole overly dramatic, uh, you know, final words before, you know, she goes limp and, you know, the eyes close. So I, I just, I... That's a bold thing to do, and I, I just I, I was I was impressed with how it came out. Like I said, that sequence in particular is some of the best comic book movie stuff I think I've ever seen on film. I mean, it just it was handled so well and so well done that it's it's just a shame that the rest of the movie wasn't handled with such care and the dialogue wasn't done as as nicely. Yeah, I'm right there with you. The things that worked were great. Unfortunately, it was a very 50-50 movie. Now, for me, normally when it comes to movies, I'm all about plot, dialogue. You know, if those things don't work, doesn't matter how great the acting was or anything like that, if the plot and dialogue don't work, um, it's it's out the window for me. I'm kind of the opposite when it comes to Spider-Man in that, for me, it's more about, did you get the characters right? Everything else, I don't want to say can be forgiven, but is secondary for me when it comes to Spider-Man. And the Raimi films, even though they might have been, at least the first two, structured and plotted a little bit better, they got all of the characters so wrong, at least for me, that I just can't stand them. These movies, I give them a little bit more leeway, or a lot more leeway, because they get, again, at least in my opinion, I know I'm, you know, not everyone agrees with me, but they get the characters so right in the web movies so far that I can at least look past some of the plotting stuff. But yes, the plotting stuff in this movie was a little rough in, in some very important places, which is a shame because I wish I could get a Spider-Man movie where I can go, hey, the acting and the characterization is great and the plot's really good too and the writing and the dialogue is really good too. We just haven't gotten there yet as far as I'm concerned, which is a shame. Yeah. But one of these days, maybe. Maybe so. I agree with a lot of what you're saying, and um, I really, I know you guys already talked about the, the cast or whatever before I was here, but uh, I really thought the main three uh, actors, uh, Emma Stone, Andrew Garfield, and Dane DeHaan, really did well in their roles, and then a lot of the other actors, not as much. Um, I didn't think uh, Jamie Foxx really lived up to his potential. As, I mean, I know he's a really good actor, I just didn't really think he brought it you know, to that level here. Um, but I, I, I agree, you know, did they did they nail the characters in this? In, Absolutely. I, I prefer this version of Spider-Man to the Raimi version of Spider-Man. I don't have the angst. I mean, I get the, the angst and the guilt of the Spider-Man, but, I mean, McGuire never really nailed the humor 
and the, the freewheeling part of Spider-Man. I mean, that's what sets Spider-Man apart from other superheroes. He, he's wisecracking. When he's Spider-Man, he's having fun doing what he's doing, even though he's in terrible danger, you know, putting himself in terrible danger for, for strangers and stuff. He, you know, he's most alive and, and cracking wise. And, and the humor of the character I thought was kind of missed in, in, in the Raimi versions. But they nail it here in the web versions. I thought the stuff with, with Stone and Garfield together as, um, you know, as Peter and Gwen really worked well. I thought they were believable to me, you know, as, as a couple and, and, and the dialogue and whatnot. I thought that part was sold really well. Um, Dane DeHaan I thought was great as Harry Osborn. I thought he was menacing without being... You know, I didn't think he was over the top the way Willem Dafoe was in the first Spider-Man uh, Raimi movie. Um, I thought I thought he, he he did it pretty well. Um, it, the weird the weirdest thing about this movie is the best thing I can say about it is it's kind of intrigued me for where they're going with it because the little Easter eggs they dropped, especially at the very end of the movie, yeah, were very were actually to me in a lot of ways more interesting than the main movie. You know, it's like what what's that? What you know, and looking in the background, the different prototypes and whatnot. Um, so I'm, I'm interested to see going forward, but yeah, like I said, like, like, um, uh, Jordan and Russell said, it's kind of a, a mixed bag of a movie, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I thought it was kind of cool how we got the glimpse of the vulture armor, the octopus arms, the, I guess what else, there was something else that we got was the rhino. Well, suit? there was a crave, something related to Craven the Hunter, maybe Mysterio, Venom, and like in the actual end credits, you see glimpses of a bunch of stuff, right. and you can link them very specifically to specific characters. The only one that was a little bit weird was it wasn't clear if it was Chameleon or Mysterio. Could have been either one of them. Right. But yeah, the the other the other five of the six were pretty yeah. well set. Yeah, I took that as Mysterio, but yeah. See, I took it as more like um, Chameleon because he has that white mask, you know, face or whatever, but. One uh, one villain we haven't talked about, though, and I think this is, was a very interesting choice for the movie, is we had it revealed who the, the man in the after credits was um, in the first movie yes. and who, who also makes a short appearance here. The gentleman who I don't think you could find a more obscure Spider-Man villain than the gentleman. Right. <laughs> I had forgotten about him. And, like, and I've actually read the books or at least like two of the books that he's appeared in. And by the way prose books not comics i don't think he's ever appeared in a comic book um and i had forgotten about this guy but he is a cool character and i think it's a very interesting pull for uh this version of the sinister six we shall see i guess we didn't talk too much about norman osborne who we got um a little bit of and i guess we kind of got the impression that or not the impression we found out that there's some family genetic disorder that he has which caused him to uh basically start i i guess it wasn't so much the disease that caused him to start looking the way he did it was more the treatments that he was trying at least that's that's the way i took it or a combination of the two more than likely um and that that was definitely passed down to harry but again i just i wish that we could have gotten more development with that than we did with the parkers i i think exploring the Osborne side of things, I think would have had more impact and more bang for the buck to, to help with this movie. And I think we'll definitely get more Norman Osborne in the future. Um, there, there have been rumors of deleted scenes that show his head still on ice and stuff like that. But, uh, cause otherwise, why would you possibly have Chris Cooper come in for 30 seconds to be a jerk to his son? Right. Um, 
aside from just nostalgia for um, that Rocket movie with Jake Gyllenhaal, October Skies. Uh, aside from that, you know, just having him come in to be your jerk of a dad is kind of a strange choice, as much as I like the actor, unless you're going to do more with him in the future. And it's Norman Osborn. He's never dead. Right. <laughs> it's probably Mencken. Mencken's probably just him with plastic surgery. Yeah. You know, there, there is a precedent, so. Um... I would love it if they brought him back like a head in a jar feature on <laughs> <laughs> Or one of the Moloids, you know. Yeah. Right, right, or the Moloids. Yeah. Where, where they take his head and genetically mess with it, and he turns into an actual beast-like goblin, kind of like the ultimate version. You know, something like that. that. Could be cool. cool. Could be cool. So does anybody have anything else, or do we want to get to ratings? Man, Peter and Gwen yep. are awesome. <laughs> I, I can't emphasize that enough. I've, I've said it before, I'll say it again. If they wanted to make a movie, a Spider-Man movie... With just Peter and Gwen, and Spider-Man never shows up, or maybe just takes out a, a mugger at the beginning and the end, but aside from that, it's just a romantic comedy with the two of them, I would totally buy a ticket on opening night, and probably go back to see it again, because if nothing else in the movie works, and a lot of it didn't work, those scenes work so incredibly well. So what you're saying, Jordan, is you want Gwen and Peter, the new adventures of Spider-Man, the TV series. <laughs> <laughs> kind of, yeah. If if it was those actors, absolutely. Or or you know, a Spider Man loves Gwen Stacy instead of Spider Spider Man loves Mary Jane comic series. Now, granted, there's no actors in that, but you know, I would totally be down for a movie version of that. Um, if she wasn't, you know, dead. Yeah, if it but there's always cloning. Thing. Um, I, <laughs> there's always cloning. All right, Jim, you we came. Bernie's. You came in last, so you rate it first. What'd you think? Uh, I wrote a review for this, and it's on the Taylor Network of Podcasts.com, and I gave it a 3.5, so double that, and I'll give it a 7. Jordan, you go. It's tough. I forget what I gave it on out now. Well, they don't do a numerical score anyway. They do the when should you see it. Right. Uh, I'm at a high 6, low 7, kind of right there with Jim. Again, the things that worked, I love. I just wish that the things that should have worked and didn't did because you know those dialogue things it doesn't take a genius to tell when they're just goofy and don't work it takes a 7 year old so maybe they can hire a 7 year old or two to you know rework the dialogue in the next movie and uh, that'll fix a lot but you know high high 6 low 7 let's just say 7 to uh to uh, make it easy richard well even though th there were a lot of questionable narrative choices, some of the writing was, you know, as we discussed, not very great. Uh, there were some questionable characterizations and uh, plot development. I think some of the seamless action sequences and the awesome special effects that were very amazingly done uh, outweighed some of those negatives to a point. It, it, I, I think that it, we had a good display of uh, special effects, stunts. I thought the camera work was well done. I have some questions about the editing. Uh, but overall, I thought it was pretty fun. It lived up to most of my expectations. Um, so I kind of wanted to, in my review, I had said I kind of wanted to give it four out of five. But some of those flaws I just couldn't overlook. And I, I'll have to go with three and a half. So it would be a seven for me as well. Wow, I think this will be the first time that all the hosts gave a movie the same score. Um, but I'm going to go with a seven. Also, it it wasn't a bad movie. It wasn't a great movie. Um, it it was really just kind of mediocre. I think you know it was like a C. 
and to me that's you know that's where the set the seven comes in i you know i've said it before i sound like a broken record but the highs were high but the lows were low um and it really dragged down what could have been um a pretty a pretty great movie if if it was just if it was somebody you know treated the dialogue a little better uh trimmed a little bit of the fat um, and and got it a little more streamlined. I, I think it relied a little too heavily on the CGI uh, for me. Uh, also, um, kind of hard not to when you got a guy swinging around uh, with web shooters. But I, I think there was some stuff that they could have done a little more practically, uh, and they relied on the CG for. But yeah, so I'll give it a seven. That's that's where I sit. So I guess that about does it. Unless anybody else, anything else they want to add. think i've said my piece yeah so this is june uh so july i think as we talked about we'll do green lantern i think that's what we're on target for uh i think the next comic book movie actually i totally forgot about this when we're going through our list of movies coming out for the summer um is hercules because it's based on the radical comics interpretation of hercules i don't think i'm going to get out to the theater to see that one um i'd be very surprised if i actually got out to the theater to see that one but I think that comes out sometime in June. I, I wanted to thank Hollywood for doing us the courtesy uh, of I've, labeling I've, it Brat, Brett Ratner's Hercules, so I don't even have to entertain the thought of seeing it, because it looks terrible. Ugh. Even besides his name being on it, it looks yeah, that, bad. Yeah, that's... I have no interest yeah. in it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> yeah. This is something that, you know, maybe five years from now, if it's on you know Netflix, I might turn on the background while I'm vacuuming. <laughs> 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 but I don't think I'll be watching it anytime soon. Yeah, maybe when it comes on Blu-ray, I'll add it to the list uh, so we can let the wheel decide if we should talk about it or not. Um, but at this point, yeah, I don't think we'll be we doing that. So again, uh, we should be on target for Green Lantern in July, and then of course Guardians of the Galaxy, which we're all looking forward to very much in August. When is um, and then uh, I think we'll be when Sin City Two coming out? Isn't that That's is it the August, end of August? Right yeah, I think that's August. It's like August 22nd, maybe. I don't know for sure. Let's consult the interwebs. The mighty, mm. mighty interwebs. Ooh, Jim gets gets the gold star. August 22nd. Uh, I think that I think that Eva Green poster like uh, put it right <laughs> in my brain to remember that. Oh my god! Dumbest non-controversial. Oh, that was because oh, that was all manufactured. There was nothing genuine about that whatsoever. And speaking of comic book movies and Eva Green, um, that my uh, uh, um, I saw Three Hundred Rise of an Empire. I don't know if we should put that on the list. Oh now. wow, you're the first negative uh, negative comic fan I've heard about <laughs> that. I've actually heard pretty decent things about it. I haven't seen it, but mm. I uh, Renee didn't wasted, like it they, either. Renee was I, really down on it. I thought it was fine. I liked it just as well as the first one for me. I, I expected it to be bad. So I didn't go see it. I didn't want to sully the memory of the first film that I really liked. And so I have no desire to see it except for maybe at some point when I need some white noise to go to sleep to, I'll pop it on Netflix. Eva Green's pretty hot in it. <laughs> and they spent a lot of money on digital blood. Yeah. Like, I mean, it was distracting how much digital blood's in this movie. Yeah. Like, okay, digital blood, I get it. All right, well, there's our Real Heroes capsule review. <laughs> yeah. Of 300. Yeah, yeah I was the only one that so, saw it at the time it came out in the uh, in the actual theater. So I think that one will go on the list uh, to, to pick up on the wheel at some point, too. So 
We shall see, but uh, but I guess that's going to do it for this episode of Real Heroes. So I want to thank my co-hosts, Jim, Jordan, and Richard, for joining me for Amazing Spider-Man You're 2. very welcome, sir. Yes. No problem. Had a good time. Walloping web slingers. Yes. Walloping web slingers, of course. <laughs> Um, so head on over to hhwlod.com for all the cool stuff that we got going on over there. You can check out all the podcasts that we have on the network. Uh, there's links to a bunch of photos. I, I was recently at the Comic Palooza Con in Houston. Got some photos put up on the site. Um, I recorded a Shield panel that we have on the YouTube channel. So you can there's a link to the YouTube channel there, but it's youtubecom slash network. Um, check out the Facebook. Yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. Yeah, it was a it was a fun little panel, a little short but but fun. As well, check out the Facebook groups that we have for the network, as well as the Long Box of Doom and the Walking Dead TV podcast, which I think will be gearing up a, a series of commentaries very soon. That I think three of these gentlemen that are with me here will probably be uh, be doing most of. I may I may pop on for one or two, uh, depending on my on my personal schedule. Um, so keep an eye out on for for that and everything else we got going on. Um, at hhwlod.com. You can send us an email at realheroes at hhwlod.com. So until next time, when we talk about the Ryan Reynolds uh, opus, uh, Green Lantern, this is Russ for Jim Jordan and Rich. We'll see you next time.